Faced with an uncertain future, many business owners and technology professionals don't have the time needed to invest in their business technology strategies. And as a result, they're afraid of their technology getting outdated and putting their company and customers' information at risk. The digital future is already here, but with all different choices in the marketplace, it's difficult to know which one will be the best fit for you and your strategic vision. Imagine having the peace of mind that your business is backed by the right technology investments that are tailored for your specific needs. Hi, I'm Brian Nichols, and I've helped countless business owners and technology professionals just like you, helping you make informed decisions about what technologies are best to invest in for your business. Voice, bandwidth, cybersecurity, business continuity, juggling all the aspects of business technology is messy. Let me help. Head to briannicholsshow.com forward slash help and sign up for a free one-on-one -on -one consultation with yours truly to dig deep into where you see your company heading and how we can align your business technology towards those goals. Again, that's briannicholsshow.com forward slash help to get your simplified business technology started today. Instead of focusing on winning arguments, we're teaching the basic fundamentals of sales and marketing and how we can use them to win in the world of politics, teaching you how to meet people where they're at on the issues they care about. Welcome to The Brian Nichols Show. Well, hey there, folks. Brian Nichols here on The Brian Nichols Show, and thank you for joining us on, I don't know if I can call it a fun-filled episode today, because we're talking about some not fun-filled things, but yes, I am still your humble host, Brian Nichols, and uh, thank you for joining us on today's episode. Today, I am joined by the one, the only, Reed Cooley. Thank you for joining us on the program, my friend. How are you? I'm great, Brian. How are you? I can't complain, man. I mean, all that's going on in the world, I, I honestly, I cannot complain. Uh, I am happy. I'm in the, the great state of Indiana, uh, along with all the Hoosier hospitality, getting settled in. And uh, yes, I, I look around the world and all the chaos that's unfolding right now over in the uh, Eastern Europe and Gotta say, count my blessings every single day, my friend, and uh, thank you for joining us on the program. Let's introduce you to the audience, Reed. Uh, it's the first time we've had you in the program, so who are you and what got you into this greater liberty world? Well, so uh, my life was turned upside down by a guy named Ron Paul uh, several years ago. I want to say it was uh, 2013, 2014 uh, was whenever I got involved in the liberty movement. Uh, I was an undergraduate student at Baylor University which is actually where Rand Paul studied for about three years of his undergraduate career. Uh, a lot of people don't know that. Um, got involved with the Young Americans for Liberty chapter there, uh, just as an activist on campus uh, doing Young Americans for Liberty things. Uh, went on uh, to a career in archaeology, double majored in anthropology and history, did several archaeological projects, and then decided that uh, I wanted to do something a little bit more important to the present day world than digging up old people and their garbage. So. I uh, got in touch with Young Americans for Liberty again, decided that I wanted to uh, fight for what I, I really cared about most at the end of the day. Uh, worked on several campaigns, did some work for Yale for several years, and uh, now I'm doing a podcast, doing writing, doing a lot of uh, a lot of things, trying to carry the fight for liberty uh, everywhere I can, like on this uh, great show. So that's me on a, in a nutshell. Well, we appreciate you joining the show, uh, especially with what you're bringing to the table, and that is a, a fresh perspective, um, and, and we need that today, especially as we're approaching a very ugh, topic, and that is uh, war. War over in the eastern uh, block of Europe. We have Russia and Ukraine. Russia officially invading Ukraine. Uh, I think the last report I saw that Russia had just taken over Chernobyl uh, and the nuclear power uh, plant wastes uh, and uh, destruction site that took place there back in the, uh, the 90s. 90s? 80s? Somewhere in that ballpark? Am I right in there? Yeah, somewhere in there. Anyways, uh, so we're seeing right now the the absolute just uh, crumbling of what had been some sense 
of peace, or maybe at the very least stability over the past few years. But this is not new, and I think this is one thing that's important for the audience to take away today, especially people who are on, a, as, as Michael Scott would say, threat level midnight, is that this is not something that is new happening over in Eastern Europe, but rather this just seems to be another chapter in quite a long set of, of sagas and chapters that have taken place here over uh, decades on end, especially since 1945. So, Reed, let's start off. How did we get here in this situation where we have Vladimir Putin and the Russian Federation now currently invading Ukraine? If you could give us the, the Spark Notes version, if you would. Okay, Spark Notes. I don't want to get too historical uh, with your audience, but I think it's a bit of an understatement to say that this is a, an issue that goes back decades with respect to Ukraine and the rest of Eastern Europe. When we look at, at the rest of Eastern Europe, what is today uh, Ukraine, uh, Poland, Belarus, you know, the, the Baltic states, or Latvia, uh, Estonia, Lithuania, um, we're talking about a part of the world that has been just repeatedly uh, divided, conquered, subdued, uh, terrorized by larger surrounding powers. And, uh, you know, the, you know, the borders of what we now call Ukraine, they've not been there for a very long time. They've not really been around for anything over a century. Um, so when you talk about, you know, the, the, really the Eastern Bloc, you're talking about a part of the world that has been partitioned in all sorts of different ways for 700, 800 years, right? So what we're seeing happen today is a trend um, that goes all the way back to, you could say, the high Middle Ages, right? I mean, I don't want to get too historical with your audience and bog them down with different details about, you know, how Ukraine w w was divided in the in the 13th century or a few centuries later by the Mongol invasion uh, or about, you know, uh, you know, the partition of Poland in the late 17th century, for example. But that's really what's going on here. Uh, we're just seeing echoes of history, echoes of a very longstanding trend and something that we have to understand is that Vladimir Putin has made this abundantly clear um, many times. Um, he doesn't even really consider you know, Ukraine, what we call Ukraine, to be a country, at least not in the same way in which we in the West consider countries to be countries, right? Whenever you go around the world, you, you encounter that there are many different definitions of what, a co what constitutes a country, right? Uh, Putin has made this clear many, many times. He doesn't consider Ukraine to be a, a, a country in the same way as, let's say, the United States or France or, or whatever else, right? Um, so this is something that is really centuries in the making, but, you know, we can reflect on on recent decades, right? Um, you know, it's, it's important to understand that the borders that constitute the country of Ukraine today, it's not, it's not, a, it's not a monolithic uh, country uh, in the least bit. When you talk about the southern and the eastern region, of, of, of Ukraine, right? You know, Crimea, Donbass, everything east of the Dnieper River. Uh, you're talking about uh, part of the country that is ethnically Russian, that is linguistically uh, Russian, at, le at least in much larger degrees than other parts of the country, such as uh, in the northeast where Kiev, the capital, uh, is Ukraine is located. But it's it's worth acknowledging that just because just because people speak Russian. And are eth you know ethnically Russian? That doesn't mean that they want to be invaded or conquered by another country, right? Um, and it's it's also worth noting that Putin, in invading the Donbass region, you know, as in what we've seen over the last two days, and attempting to incorporate it into Greater Russia, he's actually tipping the balance of power in the Ukrainian government towards his enemies. Like that's something that that, that has to be taken into account here, right? 
So um, obviously, we're not going to excuse in the least bit what, what Vladimir Putin is doing or what the Russian government is doing. Uh, but we have to understand this is something that is centuries in the making. It's absolutely intensified in decades and in recent years, going all the way back to the to the um, to the infamous coup in 19. Uh, uh, sorry, of 2014. Right. There was the uh, the ironically named Revolution of Dignity, as it was called, where they overthrew uh, Viktor Yanukovych for the unforgivable crime of deciding that maybe, just maybe, he didn't want to be a part of a greater geopolitical alliance forged in 19, 1949, whenever Harry Truman was still president. He didn't want to, he didn't necessarily think that it was to his own country's advantage to be a part of a greater geopolitical alliance, being NATO, that was you know forged in the geopolitical landscape of post-World War II. So when it comes to a lot of what we're seeing today, and we can say that it really intensified in 2014, obviously. I don't think that that's a very uh, revolutionary uh, argument, uh, no pun intended there. <laughs> um, I think that you know it's very fair to make that sort of observation because what we want to do you know, here is really try, and what, what I try to do with my commentary on the subject is keep it limited to only what can be verified, which is so awfully difficult in this world of mass propaganda at every single corner, this sort of age of misinformation that we live in, right? Um, you keep it limited to, to only what I can verify through credible sources and really just talk about the entire situation as dispassionately as possible. That is to say, without making value judgments necessarily about who the good guys are, who the bad guys are, uh, anything like that, right? Or at least not operating from any such premise. So, but, but we can look at what happened in 2014, you know, the United States backed coup against Viktor Yanukovych. Uh, you know, for the unforgivable act of standing up for what he thought his own country's interest should be, because providence forbid that heads of state stand up for their own country's interests over the interest of some greater uh, geopolitical alliance that they should, for whatever reason, uh, feel uh, feel subjected to. Uh, so, you know, the United States obviously has has a lot of blame in what's going on here, right? Um but it's it's also worth noting that you know with respect to just trying to understand where the balance of power lies, you know Russia really seems to have all the leverage right now. Like set morals aside, you know the morals of what's going on here, the the leverage really seems to be set you know um, on Russia's side here. So their desire for their preferred outcome in this situation is much much stronger, meaning that they see this conflict as something much you know much more worth fighting for than NATO and the U.S. do. Like, you know, Russia, you know, they obviously don't want NATO expanding eastward because they don't want missiles within 10 minutes or less of their capital, right? I think that's a pretty understandable concern from any perspective. Um, so their desire for their preferred outcome is much more intense than NATO in the United States, and they have geographic proximity, Right. I mean, this is a pretty much uh, unavoidable axiom of all things war that geography matters a tremendous amount. Right. So uh, by by geographic proximity, I mean that Ukraine, or at least the, the targeted parts of Ukraine, are much closer to Russia and much more subject to their missile attacks, as we've seen uh, over the last few days. <laughs> wow. So that was a lot, and I I'm, I'm wanted to just have that right there because that's a great starting off point to, to now bridge the conversation even more. And one of the parts that you started to bring up, and, and I think we want to focus a little bit on this, is not just the, the how we got here, but also the implications of what, what could happen as a result of this. 
So I, I've heard some people who they, they compare this to Iraq war. And I just don't think this is a fair comparison because now we're watching a situation where if, if the push is to have America get involved or to have uh, the, the NATO countries get involved, we are now starting to play this really weird and dangerous game with nuclear weapons at the disposal of, of Russia. And I think it was in 2019 or 28, uh, 2018 or 2019 that they, uh, the Russian Federation just went and, and revamped their entire nuclear arsenal. So, or maybe it was a little earlier than that, I forget the, the specific date. Um, but the fact that that just happened, and the fact that now we are watching what's happening unfold over in the Eastern Bloc, and now we're, we're seeing a growing push for war. The drumbeats of war have been beating here, especially on the, the, the uh, I'd say, corporate press. I must said mainstream press, but the, uh, Michael Mass was mad at me. Um, but no, the, the corporate press, they, they've really been beating these drumbeats of, of war. And I, let me ask you, Reed, I mean, do you, do you see a, a situation where America gets involved in, in a conflict here, and, and especially considering the fact that we do have nuclear implications? I want to plead Socratic ignorance here, a little bit of uh, just humility and say that I honestly don't know. That's just being fair and it's trying to be intellectually honest. But there are observations and correlations that are absolutely worth pointing out. I Obviously, I hope that we don't go in that sort of direction. But as you're describing right now, Brian, you know, the drums of war are echoing through history again. And it really seems like the war propagandists of today are reaching into the past and drawing from it all of the weapons they need to mobilize people towards war again today, right? So if you read uh, the Washington Post, the Atlantic, Foreign Policy Magazine, maybe NPR or CNN, Insider Magazine, you name it, any one of the, you know, the, the sort of state media complex outlets, you'll find so many of the same old familiar, just worn out tropes. Yep. That, that we should know better than to listen to at this point. You know, it's a narrative of some hyper-aggressive expansionist autocrat suddenly waking up and for no apparent reason at all, just deciding to attack some innocent group of people somewhere, whether they're in his own country or not, right? We saw the media spinning this narrative with Saddam Hussein. We saw it again with uh, Bashar al-Assad in Syria. And now they're spoon-feeding it to us again with Vladimir Putin, right? It's the same exact kind of story that they're telling us. But it's also worth pointing out that it was just three months ago, uh, Putin wrote a letter to Washington communicating that they did not want NATO to expand into Ukraine because yep. they didn't want missiles to be in such close proximity to Moscow, right? I mean, with missiles in Ukraine, you're talking about the possibility that they could strike the capital of Russia in four, maybe five minutes. You know, this is a perfectly legitimate concern from any point of view. I mean, if Russia wanted to put missiles in, let's say, Mexico or Canada, yep. I think that the, that the American people would have a lot of anxiety about that, and rightfully so. Uh, but it just so happens that we do have an, an historic example that we can point to, uh, that being you know, the obvious one, the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962, which uh, Jack Kennedy actually had to recruit his brother. Uh, to secretly diffuse because he didn't want the stupidity in the politics of the State Department at large uh, to be responsible for trying to negotiate such a tense uh, situation. Um, as far as the outcome of how this goes, Brian, um, I don't, I want to say that I don't foresee something as horrendous as nuclear war. I, I, my instincts tell me that that sounds a bit hyperbolic and I absolutely hope that I'm right. 
what I do, what I also hope happens from this is that, you know, people will finally see the futility of NATO. Um, people will see that this is an obsolete institution founded in 1949 and that it's it's high time to replace it with an America first foreign policy built on non-interventionism. I know that whenever people hear America first, they obviously think of our, our most recent president in this country, but I personally don't shy away from the term because just from a, a strategic and messaging uh, point of view, I see it as a way of connecting uh, with with an audience outside the liberty sphere that we need to that we need to connect with and that we need to win win support over with. So um, I think that it's time to replace it with a pro-America foreign policy built on non-interventionism. And I hope that you know that this can be a silver lining in a very dark situation in which people are dying, that, that we can see the futility of these entangling alliances, as, as George Washington called them, you know, uh, over two centuries ago. Yeah. Well, Reed, uh, and that we can oh. we'll start away from this expectation that the United States and the people like and the, and the countries like Ukraine um, just start to move away from this. Yeah. Now, as I say, Reed, and one of the things I think, you know, as we're moving forward now, people, they want to better understand not just how we got here, but how we can avoid this happening in the future. Now, I know it sounds it sounds a little weird to talk about, well, how can we avoid this from happening again in the future? But we, we need to start planning ahead because right now, if we're just constantly reacting and trying to put out fire after fire, we're going to be having this conversation again five years, 10 years, 15, 20 years. It, it will cycle constantly on end and it will not stop until we officially break that cycle. So, Let's start here, Reed. What are some actionable steps that we can recommend? And obviously, this is a little difficult, right? Because we cannot, as individuals, go out and just make these changes overnight. But we can at least start to pressure our politicians in certain directions and certain elected officials in certain directions to help them do the right thing. So what's the best way to start doing that to, again, avoid this from ever happening again? Or is that possible? I don't even know. Well, it's important to keep in mind that war is the health of the state. As long as you have states, you will have rampant and rampant and unjustified levels of war, no matter what, right? Uh, so we have to understand that 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 this that what we're seeing right now, um, this is just one of many symptoms of of the greater fight against the state. This is what happens whenever you live uh, in, in a on a globe that's dominated, you know, not by uh, not, not by an appreciation for liberty, but by a collection of super states, all vying for resources and interest and money with each other and willing to kill whoever they have to in order to get it. You know, we have, but, and, but in fighting the state, we have to understand it's many tricks, right? And I think that, uh, that we can extrapolate some of them from everything that's happened lately, right? You know, um, to word it the way that Murray Rothbard uh, might have, you know, what we're seeing now um, is one of the state's many tricks. Actually, there's an example that just popped into my head, a very concrete one I think that I can I can laser focus on right now. I'll never forget, two days ago, it was, uh, you know, and Joe Biden, he, he, he gave this press conference in which he told the American people that there are going to be prices here at home that the American people are going to have to pay for, for Putin's actions, right? I think he said, uh, uh, defending freedom will have costs for <laughs> us here at home. I think that was an exact quote, right? It's just that like that stood out to me because that sounds so much like the rhetoric that they spoon fed us as they were preparing to pass, for example, the Patriot Act. Right. You know, it's you know, they, they take something really stupid, really offensive, perhaps even something really deadly that the state wants to do, that the government wants to do. 
and they and, and they describe it as though it's some form of noble sacrifice that the people should feel honored to make for patriotic reasons or for nationalistic reasons or whatever else, right? In other words, they're ascribing some sort of virtue in ceding over more liberty and ceding over more power to the state. And this same form of propaganda is going to be used against the anti-war crowd here in the United States. You don't care about freedom because you don't care about defending freedom in Ukraine. They will tie the prices that Americans have to pay, whether it's uh, at the gas pump or it's in or it's literally in terms of their liberties to being a good American. If, if you're not willing to, to, to pay the price uh, you know, for freedom, if you're not willing to, to defend freedom by, by going to by potentially going to die in a war in a different part of the world that really has no impact on you at all, then you're not a good American. But as I'm describing that, it's also worth noting that this is not always the strategy that the state uses in order to get the people's support for something like war. In many cases, the state and the state media complex, they try to persuade us that there is no cost to war or perhaps that, um, that we'll even make money by going to war somewhere. It's, um, Describing that, you know, the, the example of Syria comes back to mind years ago. I, I remember hearing you know, the, the, the mainstream media telling us back then that if we go to Syria, we'll actually make money because we'll go there and we'll actually take the oil, right? We'll get rich. So it's worth noting, to bring it back to your question, Brian, that this is symptomatic of, 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 of the fight against the state. War is the health of the state. And the state has a wide variety of tricks and narratives that they will employ in order to gain the people's consent for whatever atrocious thing they want to do. Well, I think right now your average person is waking up to realizing that things aren't as squishy and awesome and, uh, you know, rainbows and butterflies as always they thought they were. Um, and maybe that's a good thing because we, we sometimes get too comfortable in the appreciation of certain liberties and certain rights without understanding how quickly they can be taken away. So hopefully this is going to wake some people up that, you know, it is important to start focusing on things more specifically here at home. Uh, and, and with that, folks, if you're interested in learning more about how Reed has been talking about things, well, obviously he has got a great podcast. And Reed, we want people to be able to continue that conversation with you. So both areas, podcast, social media, contact, all that fun stuff. Where can they go ahead and continue the conversation? Now, the best place to find me is on Twitter. You can find me at J. Reed Cooley. That is letter J-R-E-E-D-C-O-O-L-E-Y. Awesome. All righty. And with that, folks, if you enjoyed today's episode, please do me a favor. Go ahead and give it a share. And when you do, make sure you go ahead and give Reed a, a tag as well as yours truly at B. Nichols Liberty. And folks, I'll make it easy for you, by the way. Go to the uh, podcast catcher that you use of choice. Click the artwork. It'll bring you right to briannicholsshow.com where you can find Reed's episode, which just happens to be episode 450. 50 to go. We're at 500, Reed. We're almost there. Uh, and also, uh, you, I know, I don't know where that time went either. Um, but also, folks, if you, uh, you would be so kind when you're there, please go ahead and give us a five-star rating and review. Every little bit helps. But with that being said, it is Brian Nichols signing off here on The Brian Nichols Show for Reed Cooley. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to The Brian Nichols Show. Find more episodes at briannicholsshow.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to subscribe. Want to help us reach more people? Give the show a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. Find us at briannicholsshow.com and download the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Follow me on social media at B Nichols Liberty and consider donating to the show at BrianNicholsShow.com forward slash support. The Brian Nichols Show is supported by viewers like you. Thank you to our patrons, Daryl Schmitz, Michael Lima, Mitchell Mankiewicz, Cody Johns, Craig DaCosta, and the We Are Libertarians Network. This is renegade statesman Eric Brakey, host of Free America Now, a podcast for people ready to strike down tyranny. As a former state legislator who knows how the political machine works, I lead every episode with a free-range discussion alongside thinkers, activists, and policymakers. People like Tom Woods, Hannah Cox, and WWE superstar and Knox County Mayor Glenn Kane Jacobs on just how to free America now. New episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, and you can find Free America Now on your favorite podcasting app. So be sure to subscribe, unless you're a communist, in which case I understand why you wouldn't really like the show. Furthermore, my opinion is the Federal Reserve should be destroyed, so let's free America now.